0: 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond, and with me today is my friend and closest confidant, India Jones. Hello. Um, Our producer, A.J. Faleri. Greetings. And the kid from downtown, it's Joshua Dean Baker. Okay. (laughs) And uh, with us today, we finished our read-through of Midnight Tide, so we're welcoming him back to the show to talk about the fifth book and how he's been doing Welcome back, Stephen Erickson.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Of course, of course. And uh, how are we doing a year into the pandemic? Have you been vaccinated yet?
1: Oh, you kidding? This is Canada we're talking about. <laughs> I'm, looking at, I'm looking at May for my first vaccination. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Okay.
0: No way. Mm, yeah. Bit of a different schedule, I guess.
1: Very different. Yeah. But I just today finished the uh, editing, uh, the final proofs of the latest book. So i have just saying. Oh, very back nice. Back
2: to the, uh, the God is not willing, right? Yep. yeah and
0: and i see uh it's the out this summer is is what people are saying is this is how it seems
1: who knows (laughs) i think those are are random dates
0: all right so so not as fixed as the internet may make it seem
1: shock and and
0: (laughs) Well, uh, that that reminds me of something I was thinking about. So obviously I've been seeing you've been proofing God is not willing and like getting it ready to, I'm sure, making your final edits. Like has your process of wrapping books up changed throughout the years? Like as opposed to Midnight Tides, do you feel like you finished this one differently, edited it differently?
1: No, no, it's pretty much the same. Um, My writing process is such that when the manuscript arrives, it's it's a pretty clean manuscript. And so Mm -hmm. um, the editor reads it. Has a few comments, passes it on to the copy editor, and she does sort of line by line stuff and uh, layout related stuff. And then mm-hmm. um, it eventually gets its way back to me, and um, then uh, I get about two and a half weeks in which to turn it around, which I just did. So wow!
3: And, and what, what type, type of, of edits
1: are you
0: making in the- that two and a half?
1: I didn't make many. Um, most of them had to do with layout. I remember. I think it was uh, in Mike's read-along thing. There was some people have been talking about uh, the layout of the splits between sections in the books. I suspect, uh-huh. especially so in the electronic ones, there's a single line space is mm-hmm. what divides the sections, mm-hmm. rather than say three asterisks uh, or something along those lines. And so I wanted to make sure that in this book that we didn't get that kind of confusion that you would just get in terms of layout. So. Mm-hmm. The, um, I made sure that I got like, yeah, three stars, three stars. So here's my notes. If you guys can see that,
2: yeah, mm. oh, oh okay. it's not much. Yeah, for an entire book, that's crazy. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, uh, mostly at the beginning, uh, continuity things.
3: Mm-hmm. So yeah.
2: Speaking of editors, I there was something in Midnight Tides, and I was thinking about it today, and I I, I wonder, did you have to really put your foot down and convince your editor? No. The joke of there being, being two different demon species, one named Kenilera and one Kenrila, is going to really pay off for decades. Like how hard did you fight for that to stay in?
1: No, that's one of those cases where because I screwed up the spelling somewhere in the background, I have to play the second species.
0: <laughs> oh, that's what I said. I said it was that and that's
4: Man, I I don't know if you listened to the episode, but I gave you a lot of credit, being like, "Hey, no, you just don't get it. You're not from the. You're not from the society. You just don't
0: understand." <laughs> that's so no, funny. no,
1: that's that's one of those usual.
0: Those oh no. Wow, incredible.
4: that's incredible. That's wild.
2: Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> you, yeah. I think you've spoken before. Have you had the same editor for uh, much of your career? Uh, for
1: all the Malazan books, I've had the same uh, UK editor. Yeah, <laughs> it's changed a lot with Tor, but. My primary editor, and I do all my editing through uh, Bantam UK. So it's been the same editor. Yeah. Been very That's awesome.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Because
1: yeah. he's the one who took the chance on me to begin with. Mm. And so he's stayed with me all through this.
0: Diamond in the rough, you know.
1: Oh, yeah. Definitely. H-
4: having worked with each other so long, does he send you like pre edits? It's like, hey, just a reminder, don't do this stuff because I'm, I'm going to cut it. Nope.
1: Nope. Mm. No, we, um, no, he sends me emails saying, where's the manuscript? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Whereabouts are you on that manuscript? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah.
0: Are you an author that needs to be like badgered into like uh I'm
1: I mean I mean since the ten book series, yeah, I'm taking longer for every book. Mm. Yeah, yeah, these not, ten not books progressively, just longer. When you mm-hmm. look
0: at the release schedule, obviously, I don't know, I, I wasn't tuned into the series then. You really churned out these ten books, you know? It, it
1: was insane. It was insane. <laughs> yeah. I mean yeah. I look back, I, I still um yeah, I, there was something fevered about that. Just <laughs> yeah. getting it out, getting to the fin to the end of the series uh, was an obsession, absolute obsession. No, yeah. I don't know. I probably had intimations of mortality or something. I just had to get the freaking thing done.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I know um, I went to Mongolia on a dig. Between book nine and 10 and almost died there. And and that was kind of a wake up call. And, you know, I better get this thing finished before I do something really stupid.
0: What do you mean you almost died there? Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: on a, on a Mongolian dig. What is
0: that? Yeah, so
1: northern, northern dig, Russian crew. Uh, so language, language issues were, were certainly there. They had a uh, half the crew was uh, local local Mongolians, but mostly from Ulaanbaatar, from from the city. Um, if they had any sort of background living out in the wilds, it was a generation back, I would think. Anyways, we, we got to the camp, we, we set up our camp in this lovely valley. Um, the site was a 100,000-year-old site, but it was just absolutely the worst material you could imagine. It was really badly made stone tools. Mm. So... Whoever was living there, it's sort of been pushed there, I think, by Mm -hmm. more successful people (laughs) everywhere else. And um, so they bought a goat from um, the locals, local camp, and butchered it, and um, butchered it by hanging it off a tree. And then uh, there was going to be a traditional meal. And so they took a blowtorch to the head of the goat, uh, cut the head off, and left it on the ground uh, beside the fire pit. And then there's this very elaborate process of, Quartering up the, the goat meat and throwing in, throwing in a big aluminum container, which sits on the fire with a, a lid on it, and some water and some onions and potatoes, I think. And then when that thing's good and hot, they take it off the fire, collect all the hot rocks that the fire was built in the middle of, and put all the rocks into the pot as well. And then they close the pot back up. And so the heat of the rocks actually cooks the rest of the goat meal. Uh, sure. goat meat. Oh. So as you might imagine, everything tastes like rocks. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. Very tender, very tender rocks, but rocks. <laughs> In any case, the um, the goat's head was lying on the ground for uh, two days and then it showed up as breakfast on the third day. And we had, you know, we had no, we had no refrigeration. We had nothing. And I got so sick. I, mm. I just about, just about died on that one. Yeah. Jeez.
5: I wasn't, I don't know what I was expecting, Steve.
1: Goat's head soup.
5: It uh-huh. oh, wasn't that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there was a spider bite as well, but uh, that's that was later. But eventually <laughs> I just realized I had to get out of Mongolia because it was going sure. to kill me. <laughs> sure. <Yeah. laughs> Which is a shame because it's an absolutely gorgeous country. It's the most beautiful landscape I've ever seen.
0: I, I got to say, especially at the end of Dust of Dreams would have been a bad time for you to die. You yeah. Know? Yeah.
1: I've I told the story, be- story before. I, I had this this vision i was sitting on the bus coming back into Ulaanbaatar, and it was six hours or it was 12 hours on the bus um and there'd come a report in that there'd been flooding in Ulimbatore and, and 60 people were dead or something absurd like that hmm. and i remember thinking that if i die between book nine and ten wherever my gravestone is people will annually piss on it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i is- had to get out of there <laughs>
0: I don't want to make it seem like it's like, well, now would be a great time for him to die, you know, but it's just like, man, that would have been especially some people would have some, you,
1: know, yeah. you know. so, so I got on a plane, flew to Moscow, Aeroflot, I was a bit hairy and then Moscow to London and when I arrived in London it was at the height of the SARS epidemic and oh I probably got sick again, so hmm. yeah, it was, it was a close run thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it made me realize i was getting too old for these really remote digs
3: mm.
5: um, was that I, your last dig
1: no i've i've since worked in um southern uh, italy but much more uh, amenable circumstances
0: absolutely mm-hmm. how do you feel about people getting all worked up about unfinished series um they have a right to
1: be um mm. i feel the pressure every day on, on the Carcanus trilogy that, yeah. not than the third one um because, I mean, the readers are the ones who are investing. They're investing in this this story. And t- to me, that that delivers an obligation uh, on the writer. Um, yeah. You know, to me, it's, it's mutual respect is it, it's, it's what sort of puts the pressure on the writer. Hmm. Uh, but that's just my particular point of view on this thing. And, and I'm well aware of what happens to writers who get writer's block. And it's a horrendous thing to happen. And um, so I know of at least... At least one fantasy author who is well actually two uh who've gone through long periods extended periods of writer's block hmm. and that's hard
5: do you also because you know like you don't just write a book and then you're done like you also have to like i see you active on social media i see you active on reddit answering questions on tour answering questions is that also kind of like an added stress of knowing that you are not only writing but now you're like you're also like your own advertiser in a way too.
1: Well, that's sort of what's, uh, what's happened in, in publishing. This is a lot more of the burden is falling on the author.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the publishers are the general rule used to be whatever your advance was, was the equivalent of what the publisher was going to put into publicity for that book. So mm-hmm. if your advance was 10,000 pounds or $10,000, that was it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once that, that amount ran out, uh, publicity ended, mm-hmm. um, Publishers also tend to do a lot of their publicity prior to the book's release. And then when the book's out, uh, they just drop it, um, (sighs) unless it takes off on them, obviously. So there is a lot more, but I don't feel pressure on this. I, I'm feeling quite privileged uh, that there's so much growing attention uh, to the Malazan stuff after all these years. Um, so it's actually a lot of fun to engage with people on, online. And yeah. I was going to ask, yeah. What,
4: what's it, what's it been like for you seeing this like uh, Renaissance Malazan Renaissance, I guess, of, of people on, you know, YouTube um, and podcasts and stuff. And like,
1: cause you're well, very I'm active. I am yeah, glad I'm alive to see it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, yeah. you know, it's often the case that you know it, the Renaissance comes after the authors you know croaked it. Right. Um, so it's been great. It's been really good.
5: Has it been different, like in like quarantine? Obviously now, were you like doing like signings and stuff? Like it, I don't I don't know if that's still a thing. But
3: oh
1: yeah, um, my last long or extended signing session um, signing tour was in France, and um, prior to 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 COVID, obviously a couple of years prior. Yeah. And I think we toured um 12 cities, something like that, over a course of a month. Mm. It was it was probably the best tour i the most enjoyable tour I've ever been on. You would end up, you know, at the bookstore, um, you'd meet the book owners and, and the staff. And then after the signing, you know, everybody would truck off to the nearest really good restaurant. And you just have, you know, a really nice time that evening. Um, you know, my French is awful, so basically quite often I'm listening to conversations that I don't understand anything about. Um, that's okay. That's okay. Because it's, um, it's not too dissimilar to me writing in cafes, which is what I'm used to doing. Um, cause I don't hear conversations, but I see, I see people mm-hmm. living their lives you know, at tables all around me. And that's, that's always kind of fed into my writing in some way or another. So I, um, in that respect, the covid thing has been a real pain in the ass because i can't write in cafes and, and pubs and stuff which yeah. is what i'm used to so it's been yeah. a struggle
3: mm.
4: speaking about you writing in cafes i i in this in midnight tide specifically there were a lot of a lot of battles first of all but a lot of like really good fast one on one fights and i'm just curious what your process is like writing those scenes like do you just see it in your head or are you like sitting in the cafe doing like ah now i'm reposting and like now like
1: (laughs) what is that that? how does that no 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 i'm not i'm not pantomiming no um i I took up fencing when i was 18 Mm. and i continued fencing until about seven years ago when i uh, I tore a hamstring
3: um
1: so i've been fencing for a long long time and so when i Set out to write fight sequences, especially uh, like Breeze and, and Rula people like that. Uh, right. I, in my mind, I just sort of uh, map it, map it as I would as a fencer. Um, yeah.
0: Did you hear that he said Breeze? AJ, he did say
4: right. Breeze. I did hear that. I did hear that. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> any other strange
1: names, you guys?
0: <laughs> oh, this season <sighs> was a butchery. I gotta tell yeah. you, but
4: I mean, I think this is an this is an obvious one, but it's Udinas, right? <laughs> Udonis,
1: yeah,
2: Udonis. Wait, so we would so, so Udonis would be really incorrect, right? <laughs> it would be really. Yeah, you'd well, have to be crazy it. to keep using it.
0: <laughs> Something that we're since since we're kind of slipped into talking about the book itself, you know, Letharus is another urban environment, and you know, we pre- we really haven't been in one since Darujistan in the first book, and I think there's a really different. Mm, tone to the settings of both of these different cities so when you come to portraying urban environments and this city specifically what are things you keep in mind as opposed to when you're kind of with military hosts and on these far-flung continents which is such a different setting
1: um i think the similarity between say Letheris and um the rujistan uh, as urban environments is that or Malaz city uh, is that you have a a, a an overarching political um, entity in place, but oh. that daily lives uh, for your average citizen, basically unchanging and unchanged. And so I guess it's, it's always a case of sort of balancing the two uh, when you're creating this kind of thing. You know, if, if, if the entire point of view uh, is centered on the throne room, then the sense of the city will be very different than if it also involves citizens and, and poor people and, and et cetera. And so I'm always trying to balance that one when, when I'm doing an urban setting. Uh, I, I don't just want you know it to be top heavy in any respect. You'll be getting back to Darugistan. Um You'll also be getting to I don't know where you're at right now. You are writing.
0: We're into Bone Hunters now, but just at the beginning of it. So. Well,
1: yeah, you'll get some more Malya City with that as well. Um, so refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the one thing I'll say about Bone Hunters is it is basically two novels slammed together at, at high velocity. Um, <laughs> so structurally, it, it's problematic uh, of all the novels. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people don't seem to notice. I suspect Brittany did.
0: Yeah, we we just talked to her, yeah. yeah. So when you talk about kind of top-heavy stuff, I kind of assume you're talking about how a lot of times you know it's about the king's court and the king and knights and we're it we're you know we're in some city but the semblance of it is entirely portrayed by the ruling class and various political people and this is what our story is about
3: yeah
1: yeah which which bores me rigid so <laughs> yeah I, I always want i want the people on the street as well um, mm-hmm. and maybe it comes from the amount of travel i've done I've been in a lot of a lot of cities and a lot of very uh, interesting cities um, in my travels, and I've not been there in any any kind of official context at all um, or official capacity. And so, yeah, I'm I'm always on the street level when I'm there. Um, certainly, when I was much younger, uh, working as an archaeologist, and, and at the end of the dig, you know, just grab the backpack and off you go. Um, so places like Belize City or um, Progresso or Managua, you know, it, um, they're just all very different places. Um, mm. Even Mexico and the Yucatan, you know, if you're in Cancun or Cozumel or something like that, and you see the resort side of things where, you know, the, the ships come in and the tourists pile out and they, they go one street deep into the town, and that's as far as they ever go, <laughs> and that street yeah. is it's built for them um, with restaurants and tourist, uh, you know, souvenir places and all the rest. But go in two, three streets, and then you're in a completely different environment. It's a different culture, in fact. Um, right. A bit more authentic, I think. And being, you know, of course, archaeology student, I wasn't on that, that main street. I was in the back streets looking <laughs> for the local cafes that, you know, I wouldn't have to spend much money to eat. And that mm. kind of thing. And mm. so it's, it's, some of that sort of plays in is that I was always at ground level um, everywhere I've, I've traveled. Um, and I prefer it that way, I think, even to this day. Because it's different, as you know, as a writer on a book tour, you know, people drive you places, they they collect you up for you know the signings, um, they pay for the meals, and you, you you kind of sort of yeah raised up a little bit. Yeah, you're yeah. a big
3: deal. You're they're yeah, you,
1: that, you. know, it's different. It's different. Which is why I'm always really conscious that I'm in the role of Stephen Erickson rather than Steve London. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but normally when I travel, it's a Steve London, not Stephen Erickson. So there's mm-hmm. a there's there is a, a difference between the two for sure. Mm.
2: When you, we were talking about Lethris earlier, um, I feel like so many fantasy cities are just sort of vaguely medieval European, mm. but like Letharis is so, like, it has a character in a way that I've never really noticed a city having before. Did you, like, base it on anything? Or, or like, how did you create such a, like, a greed-driven kind of society that felt more than just that one note, even? How that could you imagine? It, that was hard. <laughs> <That> was <hard laughs> yeah.
1: um, No, uh, you can pick anywhere, pretty much, these days. I think a lot of it, I was thinking,
2: uh, I wanted a city with canals. Um
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and you played you played the canal so close to the chest I didn't give a crap about them the whole time and then by the end I was like god they were so important I'm an idiot <laughs> they're always talked about
1: well and, and I guess maybe Venice was partially um, an inspiration if you think of the Venetians at the height of their power they were all about wealth
3: mm-hmm. and oh.
1: uh, you know looting everything they could from the Mediterranean and beyond and there was always the issue of, of the city constantly sinking you know building after mm-hmm. building and I thought that was a great, great metaphor for capitalism itself. You know, it's, you have to keep building on top of it because the foundations keep sinking into the mud. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, seemed, it seemed appropriate. Mm. Uh oh, did I get political there?
2: No, no. you just I was you? sitting here you, you make such a like you just say such simple words to create a beautiful picture and it always annoys me how how quickly it happens.
5: <laughs> I agree. Very thought provoking. It-
2: it makes me think about this question, which
0: I think obviously around this book, people often talk about capitalism or imperialism or, you know, it, I, I think it's because it's most like explicitly out in the forefront of the story. Do you know what I mean, but I mean, throughout the series power and how it's reflected through people and the people who wield it are, are, you know, examining a lot of different lights, but definitely the economic half of it is so focused in this one. I wonder if, like, was there like a reason why today was the day, book five's the (laughs) book, we're going in, time to put the money on the table, you know?
1: No. um, The reason sort of grew grew organically out of my original premise for the book, which was I asked myself what would happen if the Lakota nation had uh, been proved proved victorious against the 7th Cavalry Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. marched on Washington and conquered the United States. Mm -hmm. This was my question. And it occurred to me, when in thinking it through, that it wouldn't have mattered much because the the global economic system um, that was in place, or originating mostly in Europe, but now spreading, you know, at, at that time spreading out through, throughout the world, was going to be too powerful. It was it was going to be too pervasive, and there was no way you could you could sort of turn back time. In that sense, the only option, um, say sitting bull president sitting bull would have had would be to load up the ships and send every every european off the continent and it was too late for that mm-hmm. so that that's how that whole economic side of things just forced itself uh to the forefront because i had to consider that i had to consider that there was there would be in place an economic system that they simply could not um overcome i mean they're, they're tribal peoples uh the endure they have nothing in place for this it's, it's almost a, a like a west coast Hotlatch kind of economics uh, that they're dealing with. So yeah, it, it it's it's too big a beast to handle, um, and that's sort of where the economics all came in. And then when when I realized that, I realized I had to had to actually address it. I couldn't ignore it, and so that's where whole came from.
2: Speaking of that, how much of Tahol's plan is sound economic theory, and how much of it was like you going, no one no one who reads these books is a stockbroker. They're not going to look <laughs> deep enough. <laughs> <laughs> do you think his plan was if it had come to fruition would it have achieved his goal um i don't know i mean in some respects
1: uh a lot of the futures market you know basically did everything he did anyways and everything did go come crashing down and mm-hmm. without bailouts um it would have it would have stayed crashed and ruined so uh, i mean his 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 methods were, were pretty simple but that's because i was dealing with a fairly uh, not you know, I wasn't dealing with a global economy. I was dealing with a single nation that was just busy bullying all the other nations around it. and so mm-hmm. it, it was it was centralized enough. Um, it'd be the equivalent, I guess of I don't know, yeah, taking down the genuines or the Venetians um, a lot easier to do than than taking down you know the United states or or a global economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a it's a matter of scale, I think, more than anything else. Huh
0: do you think it would be fair to characterize the book as anti-capitalist um no more
1: anti-imperialist i think would be bearing in mind that that most empires are economically driven um, at least these days um so empires expand not not necessarily through taking over land but through taking over the markets uh, that uh exist in in other countries so that kind of imperial conquest is is you know it's, it's personified in in your kfc's and your mcdonald's and and you know these things that are that are worldwide now doesn't matter where you go you'll find them Yeah. No. so that is a form of, of imperialism um but mm. it's exclusively economic mm. um I mean, it, it, it imports into these places a particular lifestyle, which is um, very much a Western lifestyle as well. But sometimes that could kind of folds seamlessly into whatever that culture is there. I mean, the cafe culture of, of the Arab nations you know, is it's perfectly built for Starbucks, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. So it, it's complicated. It's complicated. But in terms of capitalism or anti-capitalism, I mean, that's I guess that's part of the package when you're looking at imperialism. At least one that, you know, no longer, I guess, engages in slavery or whatever. Um, Well, I guess you could argue even the slavery stuff is economic. Anti-capitalist, I don't know. It's more anti-excess. Anti the notion that we can continue to expand uh, indefinitely within a finite environment, which is this contradiction that everybody seems to be ignoring.
2: So does that mean you would, in in that way, would you say that the eater are the more moral side? I don't... I This was... I, I I said in the podcast that I've never... Like, never before have I wanted neither side to win as much as in this series overall. Every book that has a, two people fighting, I'm, with the exception of Memories of Ice, because one of them is comically evil and cannibalistic <laughs> and everything. But besides that one, I'm, like, this book, I was like, I don't know who wants... Can they both just give up? Is, like, that... An, like, how... I don't know. What do you well, think? If you if you had to pick one, like, would you say either of them has the moral high ground in this conflict, or are they both just?
1: No, I mean the novel's about you know what constitutes the moral high ground, and the right. fact that that is um, that is a constantly shifting target. Um, so uh, it's more about I think it's about systems um, and the fact that systems are are uh, stronger and bigger than um, the sum of its parts. So that any person within that system is, you know, it doesn't matter if if a millionaire or penniless on the street, there is a kind of a, there is a current that's flowing and you can't swim against it. And if it takes you off a cliff, it'll take everybody off the cliff. So it was more about systems.
0: Um, we just started reading Bone Hunters and something we were marked on is just how different the tone of that book is, you know, and Josh, I think you were talking about this and you in, in, in our, in our questions, you wrote that Midnight Tides has a morose tone. And to me, I think I feel like it's like everyone's going off the cliff and it's just like, man, there's nothing to be done about it. Do you mean? <laughs> and it feel there's a sense of helplessness about it, you know? Well, so I, I don't feel like either of them have a high ground. I just feel like the book's more about we're standing on the edge of the river, watching them be washed away, you know?
1: And, and that goes back to, you know, that premise that I began with is, you know, what, what, what would happen uh, had, had the um, so-called Indian wars gone the other way. And so when I, reached sort of my line of thinking um it it yeah it struck me as very tragic uh but for everybody involved uh, not just for one side or another but the novel really really wrote itself it was the it was the most effortless of all the novels i've written
2: yeah i know you've said that
1: yeah yeah it just flowed Mm.
2: at which point did you decide i know i'm setting up a great scene to explain the troll shorting but nope i'm not getting it like like, how how deep in were you like that scene's cut it's over
1: (laughs) i didn't mind um you got enough you got enough of what you needed um there's no there's no reason to to go you know revisit that um Mm -hmm. is put in place that explains why it happened and that's good enough i think gotcha Hmm. you're looking
4: you're looking confused india she just messaged us that she's having issues. I think she might be frozen. Yeah, she's oh, frozen.
1: she's frozen. Oh, yeah. Oh, I thought okay. that was the longest pondering I've ever seen. <laughs> well, I did she's too. I was like, concerned. she's
2: really intense. Well, any other specific questions on? I have a small one. Sure. Why? Why would male choose the name Bug? <laughs> because the whole book, I until the end when we get the reveal, I I like. I just assumed Bug was the real name, even if it like didn't make any sense. Even if that wasn't, even if manservant wasn't what Bug was, I assumed Bug was his name because it's such a bad name. I assumed no one would purposely give it to themselves. Why? Why would? Why would an elder god pick that name of all?
1: Is it just an? Is it just a joke? Sure, I would think. Um, yeah, he wouldn't put much attachment to it. That's for sure. Uh, and I mean, he was he was playing a role as well, wasn't he? So you gotta you gotta get into character, even if you're a god.
2: Did, was there did you have an like an iconic comedy duo in mind for those two? Because I think that is some of the most humorous writing that I've ever read.
1: Yeah, G's and Worcester obviously come to mind. Um Worcester and G's, whatever it is. Uh
2: anybody else in literature? Um no, I don't think so. It's also it's very British humor. Like yeah, the it is. The quick wits, the the dryness of some of it. It's yeah, it's really good. I don't know, I'm just gushing. I no. didn't realize how much I liked this book until we finished it. <laughs> we sat for a bit. Now what was were Tehale and Bug
4: based on anything? Because I know you said Pearl and the Star were based on you and your wife, but were Tehale and Bug just like your thoughts going back and forth between each other, or the, was there a specific person you had in mind?
1: No, no specific person. It was more a case of it, it's the inversion that, that, that made made it for me interesting. Hmm. That you had the privileged individual um, is the one who is penniless. And oh. the manservant is the one who is the most capable, uh, mm-hmm. as it turns out. Uh, you'll find out later, is, is involved in all kinds of business dealings. So, <laughs> yeah, it was just playing those two off each other.
2: Mm. <sighs> um, Pete, if you're not caught up, we're, uh, India's got some mad computer problems.
0: Yeah, I see some text messages here. That's yeah. unfortunate. Yeah,
4: while, while she's away, let me ask this question I know she has no interest in. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh. There she is. Oh, stuck. Wonderful. Hey, India.
0: All right, Uh-oh. AJ, what was your question that India wasn't interested in? <laughs> <laughs> um,
4: well, now that she's here, I feel like I've made a big assumption. But I mean, obviously, you know, you base a lot of stuff, you know, off of other things. Um, and I think kind of obvious, I guess, uh, comparison uh, is between the use of magic, specifically in this book, but in general, uh, the use of magic as in comparison to like nuclear arms or like kind of heavy military weapons uh correct me Mm -hmm. if i'm wrong in assuming that but like was there any specific events that you were you were thinking of when like the chrisnans were like having their faces torn off or anything or was it just like general you know military excess
1: um probably just military excess Mm -hmm. uh quite often in fantasy settings in 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 epic fantasy one doesn't get much of a sense of an evolution of warfare Mm -hmm. um technology and so but also magic um, as a stand-in for uh, modern warfare. Um, the fact that a lot of a lot of modern warfare is quite uh, indiscriminate. So I wanted to sort of come up, you know, and, and explore that kind of idea as well. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, and you know, you think in terms of say the slaughter at Wounded Knee or whatever. Um, that was, you know, that's that's a clash of technologies where one side simply didn't stand a chance. Right. And, the other side you know because of that became completely indiscriminate mm. so children you name it everybody was killed mm. you,
2: you you held on so long to the idea in the first five four books of this idea that it's it's so hard for magic to really be the big thing in a fight because you know there's always a, as an equally skilled mage and in a you know in the other side um i just uh what made you decide that this was the this was the time when when that needs to be not even just for the characters i feel like it was really important as an audience member to be reminded that no if you miscalculate it that you know it is over what made you decide that this was the point that that needed to happen
1: uh well it's a good opportunity because i was on a different continent that had uh incorporated different mythos regarding magic mm-hmm. so it, it was it as it was less constrained um, And so it's the right opportunity, at least uh, also in terms of the fifth book as well, um, Mm -hmm. before people get too complacent in terms of trying to figure out magic and all the rest. it's sort of time to take take the baseball bat and, and whack him in the head. And, yeah. You know, just to, just to keep you guys off balance as much as possible. Yeah.
2: We can't ask Peter these questions, but we can ask you these questions. The magic on this continent. Is it primal? Like is it like more archaic? It's closer bound to chaos. Okay. Yeah. I that it was so cool to just I mean oh. Bone cyclones, man. Who knew that's what I needed in my life?
5: I have such a hard time imagining what that looks like. Even when I read it, I'm so confused the whole time. Like when I when I imagine it, I just imagine just like, I don't I honestly bones? I don't know. No, I didn't even know that they were bones. I don't know where I missed that part. I just like a wave is all I see in my head. Um so mm. for me it's really hard to visualize the way um that my co-hosts do. <laughs> but
1: it's probably a good thing. I mean, some of these images are not, are not pleasant ones. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, but I just wish that I had, because when we talk about them in the episode, they're like, oh my God, that was so cool with the bone cyclone. And I'm like, what bone cyclone? What face is melted off? It's just like, I, it just goes right over my head mm-hmm. every single time. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm not like super not gonna lie Steve like I don't love it because I don't get it but I'm sure if I did I would find it more enjoyable
1: (laughs) but it's not it's not necessary to for the books okay so you know concentrate on the characters and that's fine that's absolutely fine the rest is just sort of all flash yeah I
4: I feel like you kind of in this book explicitly kind of laid that out when uh Saren was getting the description of Warren's and it was kind of just like Mm -hmm. oh you know they do what they do just don't think too
0: hard about it. It's like, "Oh, okay, yeah. fine." Like, yeah.
5: if that's all we needed to know. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which is how I prefer it. I don't know how you feel, Steve. I find when we are articulating to a certain degree about the mechanics of magic or the world or there's a certain level of details that I kind of my eyes glaze over and I But obviously there's just an element of personal preference there. So,
1: yeah, yeah, and I have mine, and, and you know Cam has his, and, and fortunately for us, we were pretty closely matched, in when we were creating the Malazan world.
5: Um, yeah. But there
1: are other, you know, other fantasy settings and other authors who uh, approach magic in a very different way, and you know, it, it, the readers will find what they like.
0: Exactly, it's just, it's just that. You, so you mentioned a uh, Native Americans' relationship to the United States relationships doing a lot of work in that <laughs> Um, <laughs> as uh, as, an <laughs> as an inspiration or like a building off point, but obviously, um, I uh, you're from Canada, and I wonder what the the history in Canada and what that history did that play into it. What was how did that affect your influence? You write in the story,
1: sure, absolutely, and you know, one of the problems I think, especially when approaching, um the relationship between indigenous uh, peoples of uh, uh, North and South America, Central America, but let's go specifically with United States and Canada, is that that history is not over, right? Mm-hmm. It's not over. And so it almost becomes too easy to sort of point fingers back at the, into the past and say, you know, well, that was pretty horrendous. Uh, we shouldn't have done this. We shouldn't have done that. Which is where the notion, at least in, in Canada, where, uh, reparations are, are a major issue, uh, uh-huh. on, on national federal scale and provincial scale. So I guess what I'm looking at, you know, and I've worked a lot with native groups, uh, in archeology. Um, I think when I first went in as a student, there was a, quite an adversarial relationship between the two. And in the time that I was working that, that started to change, uh, quite dramatically and, um, working with native groups on digs and stuff, um, has become much more common but i mean the crimes against those cultures have not ended um they continue to this day and so you know if i was going to sort of bring up this notion of what if um, which i was inspired to do driving through south dakota actually Mm. on a vacation i can't help but you know continue to think about uh The treatment um, I've actually witnessed myself, maltreatment of of Native peoples by by usually uh, figures of authority, uh, police, RCMP, that kind of thing, which goes on to this day. And so there is a sense of, uh, I guess, rage uh, at the injustice um, of what has gone on and what continues to go on. So, yeah, that stuff's all going to sort of bubble through when I'm creating a story like uh, Midnight Tides, because, again... uh, there are systems at work, and those systems are pretty overwhelming. And quite often, uh, you know, here in Canada, there was certainly a sustained effort to uh, basically destroy cultural identity among Native peoples through uh, re-education, um, yeah. uh, taking children away and you know, putting them in private schools, um, basically forcing them not to speak their own language, this kind of thing. So none of that really has gone, you know, has gone away. And so I'm pretty sure a lot of that was, was yeah, percolating... Especially when I was dealing with, um, not to Hull, uh, probably not Breeze, what's his brother's name? Hull. Hull, yeah. Uh, When I was dealing with his notions of uh, guilt and um, his self sort of flagellation uh, regarding the role he played uh, in some of these things being played out in Mm -hmm. his life.
0: And you know, yeah, yeah, it's what you said, it's not ancient history, right? Nope. Hmm.
1: Well, we always end up with something, something
0: heavy to talk about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
4: Hello everybody, producer AJ here, popping in really quick in the middle of this great conversation with Steven Erickson to thank you so much we're listening to our fifth conversation with steven erickson it's always a delight to have him on the show we are already looking forward to having him on after book six if you would like to give us your thoughts or feelings about this or any of our episodes you can always email us 10verybigbooks at gmail.com or you can head on over to our discord bit.ly slash vbb discord that's capital v capital b capital b capital d discord. that link will also be in the show notes of course thank you to all of our wonderful patrons over on patreon we are now over 200 monthly patrons which which is an absolutely wild number. Thank you all so much. Uh, if you would like to contribute to the show, you can head to patreon.com slash 10 very big books. That link will also be in the show notes. And as always, thank you so very much to Dan Geserick for making our spectacular logo. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan where he finally revealed his supernatural influence on Flyers games. And of course, the wonderful music in today's episode is by the one, the only Amaranthon from their album, The New Romantic, which you can find along with their other music on Bandcamp. Com. Links to their pages will be in the show notes and 10 very big books. We'll be back next week where we will be discussing the Bone Hunters Prologue chapters 1, 2, and 3. Talk to you then. Thank you so much for listening. And let's get back to the conversation with Steven Erickson.
2: Uh, you're, you posted... A pitch on social media no. a handful of weeks ago about the 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 Malazan Book of the Fallen in two volumes.
1: Yeah, that... my, my original ambition was one, one volume
2: I um, for, I g- could not get enough of your of your like. the printing industry isn't ready for me. That was
1: <laughs> well. I mean, in many respects, I mean, you can find you can find you know tomes that that could probably match it. Um, basically I had a friend send me, um, PDFs of the entire 10 book series and I, I dropped them onto my, um, into my word program and altered the font and then, uh, split it into three columns. And, hmm. um, it came out at 3000. Oh, was it? 3,000 pages? Yeah, I can't so
4: The one? Bone Hunters mass um, market paperback is 1,200, and that's too big. <laughs> this thing is thick.
1: Yeah, but I, I was thinking eight and a half by 11 in terms of mm, book size. Okay. Um, okay, I would strongly
2: prefer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: and it would have been sort of co- um tabletop, you know, coffee table style mm. book rather than something that you can, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. lever yeah, onto yeah. your. Onto your lap and and read while your legs go numb. Yeah, <laughs> you no, know, it's so. Uh, it, it just was his ambition of and then uh, drawing up or rather than making use of some of the my hand drawn maps of various places mm. and, and you know packing it full. So where we're at right now is um, Subpress, uh, Bill Sutherland <clears> runs it. We've been emailing back and forth for weeks on this now, um, and he has found. Um, a, uh, a binder that uh, basically is is making the offer on this uh, to do this. So this is, I mean, I can't make any definitive statements quite yet, but it's all starting to look good for a two-volume um, set.
2: Wow. It might
0: just work. What? It just <laughs> might work. yeah
2: <laughs> if, Speaking of coffee table books, if you ever want to put all of the epigraphs into mm. one book in a moment, I would buy it.
5: Huh,
1: oh, interesting.
2: Yeah.
5: Um uh, it's not really a question, cut, but it kind of is. It's more of a proposition. Okay. Will, will this,
2: <laughs> she did not clear this.
5: Will this will this large volume <laughs>
1: Damn, um
5: And has anybody ever asked you to dedicate a book to them?
1: No, and I just... am
5: asking. No,
1: sort of the rule is People don't ask. They may expect. But it
5: sounds
1: to the author to, to decide if there's, um, where the bedi- dedication is going. And basically, the rule I had was, you know, if you look at dedication to House of Chains, well, the primary role-played character there was was mm-hmm. Mark Paxton McCrae's character. Uh-huh. So I dedicated it to Mark. Um, and then I, I slowly worked through the rest of the gaming group.
0: So Midnight ties and all the rest. So that's a that, that's a maybe is what I heard. Yeah.
1: Well, it, it would be a dedication to for the entire like two mm-hmm. volumes or
5: Correct. Dedication? Like in the front dedicated to <laughs> India. Yeah, not the rest of us. <laughs> My <laughs> biggest fan.
3: <dad>. <laughs> gotcha. I just right. wanted to I put will it bear out there that in, mind. No, bear yeah. that in mind.
5: Yeah. Absolutely. Just a thought if it was on your mind. Right. I just wanted to bring it right to the front. <laughs>
3: mm. It's there.
5: Good. There you go. <laughs> okay, great. But then mm-hmm. okay, but I do have a book related question and I'm not really sure how I want to ask it yet. So so, last we spoke, you said that the first four were like a set, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the fifth. Is that just a standalone? It's a bridge. It's a bridge. Will I ever hear anything about um Udina, Udinas Udenas?
1: Udenas? Oh yeah.
5: His his child
1: his child
5: what, what, why <laughs> if not then why, and why oh, also-
1: oh yeah oh yeah no 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 yeah you'll
3: see me <laughs> again
5: oh great good <laughs> okay because uh, I was just wondering first of all if this book is it was such a it was just it's just so different from <laughs> the first four and then we're just in the beginning of bone hunters but as we all have already said the it's it, it's just I I was just curious. I really, yeah.
1: A yeah. uh, reaper scale, I think, is where you will see. Yeah. Here,
5: here, here,
0: here's a question, you know. So we, of course, fifth book, new characters, new continent, you know, fresh page, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, it comes in the middle of the series. It's this whole thing, you know. But I wonder, since we're getting a bit further on, to talk about the bigger picture structure of the whole series, you know, like, what are things you keep in mind, like, when you sat out to, like, write 10 books, you know? And, of course, you're aware of pacing things throughout it, you know? But what are considerations when you think about writing a series this long and what it means to kind of take this detour that I know you knew you had to do, just how you were going to position different things throughout 10 different books of a series?
1: Um, well, okay, the first the first four are like... Um... The textbooks in your first year, um, so they get you familiar with the subject matter, and they get you sort of comfortable enough so that you're not asking sort of questions of related to world building. You know, by by the end of book four, I think you, you either you've either bought in or you're no, you're no longer there, right? Those are the yeah. two options. So then, basically, with book five, I realized that this was a good time to take a almost take advantage of that comfort and push you a little bit out of that comfort zone again, but still within the same world, because I knew that in terms of setting, um, this is not the last we've seen of, of leather. Um, and so I had to get, I had to get there at some point. And so now, um, you've been introduced to at least some of the backstory and then time, time, wise timeline wise, you will be brought up to the present, uh, I think by Reaper scale. Um, so, it needed to be. It needed to be there, and I couldn't squeeze it in um, at the beginning of Reaper's Gale because there was too much going on. Um, and so I threw Troll Sengar in early enough so that, plus some other elements like, you know, the, the ship uh, Solanda and all that kind of stuff, um, mm. just sort of set them up, and then um, because they were places I could I could sort of reference uh, later on. In terms of the storytelling, which would help link up some of the narrative and some of the events that happened earlier, um, and then once I guess once that sort of it had to be at the halfway point. Um, anything later wouldn't have worked structurally. You know, try to imagine, yeah, me squeezing all of Midnight Tides into the first I don't know half of Reaper's Gale. First of no. all, it would have been a, <laughs> a huge book. Um, and curiously, uh, the most problematic one structurally, and I knew it would be would be Bone Hunters. Because I had to pick up the story left behind from mm. books one to four and drag it across half the world, basically, and so that's why it's it's there's a lot in there. It's a big book.
3: It's a, it's <laughs> it's a big book.
1: Yeah. It's a big book. But you will get a breather kind of in the middle between the two.
0: So something I think about is like you know obviously there's ten very big books. You could say you know it's a it's a lot of book. You know. Have you read many other like 10 book series or like things that are this long? Because I, I, you know, I think about when people talk about series this long, oftentimes people be like, oh, well, this handful of books is, you know, slow. This handful of books is whatever, you know. I feel like when series get this big, they're kind of their own little world in a way. So I don't know. Did you always want to write a super a kind of bigger series, or well, like what's your relationship to big series? I guess.
1: Um, yeah, I think I wanted to because I wanted um, I wanted to create something that kind of exhausted my bank, uh, my 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 account in terms of all. All that interested me, all I wanted to explore through fantasy uh, as a genre, mm. and I wanted to put that all in one um, discrete package.
3: Mm.
1: Ironically, you know, some of the Bokaline Coverbroch novellas; those were sort of side steps where I just had to sort of yeah, I guess maybe get a bit more sarcastic, uh, satirical than I could actually afford to do in the main mm. series, um, since I was dealing with some pretty heavy themes there. So the Bocalane stuff is kind of. You know, there's going to be nine novellas total, I think. Oh, mm-hmm. I might even write a tenth one. In which case, ten really short novellas that act in counterpoint to the ten really big books of the Malazan series. I might do it that way. But, uh yeah, I can't think of many. I mean, one of my favorite writers, George McDonald Fraser, his Flashman books. Um, I don't know how many there are of them. Eight or nine, maybe. Something mm-hmm. like that. Could be more. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I can't think of many that... That run to this length and that was kind of part of the ambition was to actually um i guess do it make sure the story was um the right story for 10 books as opposed to say uh oh, i am probably get killed on this but wheel of time hmm. um which kind of stretches <laughs> out a little bit and you know uh, no fault to to jordan i mean if that was you know the money was coming in why not continue <laughs> it right yeah. huh. um whether that story could be could have been condensed um, is is open to to discussion. But hmm. I, I, I definitely felt I wanted I wanted a story that was um, the right size and the right kind of story for ten books. And you know, and talking with Cam, he wanted he was thinking six books for his, and so that's what he set out to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were quite deliberate, I guess, uh, on both mm-hmm. our parts.
0: You mentioned Wheel of Time, which like it gets talked about in relationship to your books a lot. Do you know what I mean? And I think primarily because it's also in this pantheon of having a lot of books, you know? It's 11,
1: isn't there? 11 books? I think there's 15. Is there 15? Okay.
0: I don't know. I, I haven't read them all. So, but because I think a lot of series or trilogies are somewhere around three, four ish, you know, if they're going to be a series. And then 14. 14.
2: Interesting. 14, a prequel novel and two companion <laughs> books. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: But but I think Malazan gets talked about in relationship to Wheel of Time, maybe A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, Stormlight Chronicles, the Sanderson thing. Like I don't know, how does it feel to have your books be put alongside these other series simply because there's a lot of volumes of them?
1: Well, I mean, it would be
0: simplistic
1: to put them alongside because they're very different.
0: They're they're very different.
1: Yeah, all, all and, of those
0: series are different.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't really – I don't know if I have a response to that. I mean, yes, you can sort of visually look at big piles of books and and set up three piles and say, oh, yeah, these are all very similar because the
0: piles are are about the same size. (laughs) It doesn't really
1: really give you much
0: uh, in terms of – This is the only way I compare books. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, well, I mean – I mean, I'm, re- I'm quite admiring of, of, of Brandon because he is a writing machine. Turns him out. He really puts them out, yeah. And that's very impressive. And he, and he stays very busy with other stuff related to it as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it's, it's just all of us. We're all sort of in there, I guess, within the genre and doing what each of us wants to do. And so it's, it's like, you know, if you were to do a, a workshop and, and you had 10 students and you gave them a premise, which I've done on occasion, and I said, write a scene. Uh, based on this premise, you'll get ten different versions of it, very, very different versions. Um yeah. and that's that's the great thing about uh, the you know genres um, is that there's there should be one hopes a lot of room for maneuvering uh, in the genre. Yeah,
3: uh,
4: you brought up Lane and Coral broach a little bit ago, and you know obviously we we talked to uh, Mark Paxton McRae who just released it on the main feed, talked to Patreon a couple months ago, and. I mean, he talked about how brutal you were with those characters when he was running that game, but really what I want to ask in regards yeah. to uh, your role-playing is, he said you don't really do character voices, but you did one for Krupp, and I really just want to know what the voice for Krupp is.
3: Uh, no, I didn't do...
1: I didn't... No. Um, no particular accent or or pitch hmm. of voice. Rather, um, I would have Krupp speaking and always... Uh, address himself in, in mm-hmm. different person. And, um, and then I would, I would sometimes mime having a handkerchief so that when conversations got rough, I'd start mopping my brow. <laughs> so, um, and that, I and mean, that would be kind yeah. of it. Um, mm. But yeah, Krupp was a lot of fun because once you get into the rhythm of, of you know, overstating absolutely everything, um, it, it can become uh, at least it personally entertaining. Even if I drove Cam up the <laughs> wall. With it. Cam wasn't a fan. I don't think Cam minded. I mean, Cam had Woo. He had Cam and Saad, right? He had the Emperor on yeah. the throne, who was an absolute, uh, I mean, he was a nightmare because he had no idea whether he was insane or just diabolical beyond belief. <laughs> and, you know, Cam never really answered that question. So, in any of the yeah. games, I never knew. Um,
4: Mark also said about g- uh, gaming with you is that you've ruined him for other, other GMs. And do you think that's no. a. a, a... A credit to you or a credit to kind of your group as a whole or, or like the, the games you played together?
1: Well, we were really narrative-driven. <laughs> so we weren't um, module-oriented. Uh, and, you know, the Monty Hall campaigns, as they used to call them, where you just gather right. loot, um, that was never of interest to us. So everything was sort of narrative and they're, therefore character-driven, um, dragging characters into circumstances that they were not expecting and then making sure that, the choices were morally complicated. And so you could choose one, you know, you can make any of these choices, Mm. but each would have very different consequences Mm. and would point very much towards, you know, what that character was going to be like. Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, I don't know. I mean, I've just been roped into my first, uh, participation in a role playing game online this one, this time, Mm. um, through zoom. And it's it's ironic because it's Star Wars, and I know nothing about the Star Wars universe. <laughs> so, um, I've created a droid is my character. Mm, very nice. But of course, he's not. It's not just a droid. He's actually, or it's actually six droids <laughs> that are just attached to,
4: him, to
1: attached together. <laughs> okay. And uh, they can dismantle it's themselves. Okay. Because they have engineering skills and technician skills. Mm-hmm. So to get into small places, you know, <laughs> the Star Wars equivalent of the Jeffries tube. Now I've got these little ones that can crawl all over the place.
2: And so, are, are they wearing a trench coat so that it looks like a flush, right? It's even
1: better. They have something called a, holo, a holographic cloak. I think a holographic robe, ah. so they can they can basically look like a person. Um, <laughs> but, you know, break apart, um, and then the head, which is where the central processing is, I've made sure all it has is this tiny jetpack. So that <laughs> it's got no legs and no arms. So you know, if, if, if this droid's ever blown apart, it's just going to lie there. <laughs> so, um, uh, unless, of course, it can use this jetpack. Of course. But mm. um, but we haven't started playing it. We just. Finish rolling up the characters on Wednesday. And um, yeah, uh, I think two of the other people have been in games I've run before. So they've already been warning the game master that, you know, (laughs) uh, I'm pretty unpredictable Mm. in these circumstances.
0: I got to tell you, I think the book dedication could be a big lift, you know, Inge. I'm not I'm not ruling it out, but it could be a big lift. But Steve, I got to say, I think one day we're going to try and wrangle you onto the show to role play with us. You know, oh, yeah? I think I think it's going to happen. You yeah, know, I, yes. we ran it by Mark. What, he
1: seemed what, system, to what system are you guys playing right now?
0: So we were just uh, we're playing a rat catchers game now, and we've kind of made a mystery game out of it. We're like solving mysteries in Letharus.
1: Oh, right. That sounds great. Yeah. Is it uh, a D&D or is it GURPS or is it?
0: We're using a system called Gumshoe, which was derived as an expansion to another system, but now kind of is a standalone thing in a different way. It's made to be hackable
4: so you can put it into different, you know, you can put it into whatever kind of uh, setting you want
1: but everything's... Is it a 20D system, or is it...
0: Uh, no, use a D6, and, um, it's, uh, I guess we're really sidetracking, but... uh, It's pretty light mechanics mm -hmm. overall. Yeah, it's, it's pretty light. Part of, I think, uh, the gist of the system was that it kind of stinks when you don't get mystery clues when you're playing the game. So it's kind of built around. Uh, uh, it's hard to explain. Anyway, it, it's, it's a pretty good system. It, I feel. If you have points
4: so. in certain skills, then you notice things and you don't have to roll for it or anything. Like if I had a photography skill or something and I like lift my camera up, as long as I have one point in it, I will get whatever the photography related clue is. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, it's fun to solve mysteries and not fun to not solve mysteries.
2: Yeah. But you got to ask the right
4: questions
3: still. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Is your Who It thing ever going to come out or is this a lost Steve project?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's probably a lost project. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Do you know the author David Keck? No. He's written a fantasy trilogy um, with Tor. Uh, fabulous, uh, trilogy. He's a fabulous trilogy. He's an old friend and he ran a game uh, that involved me, Cam, um, and most of the crew. Uh, that show up uh, in, as bone hunters, mm. and it was a science fiction game um, set in sort of future setting of Chicago. Mm. And the character I rolled up was, um, I think, a Hungarian immigrant who was a uh, landlord of a tenement building in Chicago um, called the Charles Mansions,
0: mm.
2: which uh,
1: is a pretty horrible pun. You guys, will.
2: a little bit, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, there it is. There it is. Took me a second.
1: Creepiest character I've ever played.
3: Mm. Oh.
1: Now that I've used the same name for this droid, and so I suspect this is gonna be a very creepy droid. So <laughs> maybe in this mood these days. So if you guys get me into a rat catcher's guild type game, this could be pretty, pretty creepy shit.
3: Maybe.
0: <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun if you ask me, Steve. <laughs> so When you talk about you retiring from like running games, but it sounds like you're still playing them pretty actively.
1: Uh, No, I haven't. Uh, That was years ago. Uh, I've been trying to get Dave to actually write, write up the the campaigns as, as novels because yeah, they were, they were crazy. They were crazy Mm. stuff. Um, The second half was all in space on a ship. It was really, really good, but no, uh, generally I don't have, I just don't have the time uh, to run a game. And I've found actually I often don't have the time to play in a game either. But it's it's COVID. We're stuck, you know, all of us stuck here. We're, we're not doing much. Um, so I just thought, okay, I'll give this a shot. So mm-hmm. Star Wars, it is.
0: <laughs> time to get into the Star Wars.
1: Yeah, I, I tried to rename. I tried. To, we got a ship uh, um, as a droid. I came with the ship. That's how I wanted it. Nice. Um, and I wanted. Uh, I think one name which ended up we didn't do uh, I think it was doing Cent- Centennial Sparrow mm. as opposed to Millennium <laughs> Falcon but uh, we ended up not doing it I think I used that in Willful Child
4: somewhere but. Mm. yeah there's something like that there's the whole Han Solo bit those, <laughs> those books are Hans Olo Hands yeah. Olo yeah
5: oof
0: <laughs> I'm trying to bully India into uh, asking a question
5: everything I need to know I've asked <laughs>
2: There was only one thing, and it was. (laughs) You you dedicated a novel to me. (laughs) No,
5: that wasn't true. I asked two other questions that were very pertinent to me. I mean. Go ahead. No, no, please, you. Well, I
1: was just gonna say one thing I noticed. I think when you were discussing the throne scene in Midnight Tides, all of you uh, missing the point that uh, it was a nudge from the errant that had Breeze pick up the cup of poison. Yeah.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, I didn't mention it because. We haven't really met the
2: errant that much. That's true. You know? And is it, is it intentional that the errant nudges, which is like, we already have a lord, we already have uh, the first book, The Push and Pull. Mm-hmm. Is Opon. It, Opon, yeah. Is that meant to be similar to one another? Or are they like... Oh, okay. 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 No, right, very
5: good. similar. Mm-hmm.
2: Good.
5: That scene really pissed me off.
2: <laughs> it is It is rude. It is rude of you to hide grace <laughs> for a whole...
5: I was so mad
2: a whole book of Breeze being like I guess he good with sword I don't know really and then what's it's not even that he's good with the sword he's an anatomical genius <laughs> and you get to see
5: it once very impressive oh. and then he died yeah. Yeah. Oh, poor boy but then whose finger got cut off? His. His. Yeah. yeah, his. Yeah. And then Featherwit picked it up.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Steve can't yeah. end a book without breadcrumbs in 80 different directions. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Somewhat bloody breadcrumbs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So you enjoyed the book? Let's get a, a, yeah. a vote here. It's like. Midnight times?
2: I, Yeah, I think I put it really high when we just when we were talking with Brittany. I think Josh and I put this on the top when we talked to Brittany, or right below yeah, maybe I, Memories of Ice. But I think I I think I've decided I like it more than Memories of Ice because Memories of Ice, in my opinion, so far is the best fantasy novel I've ever read, and this is the best. It's not fantasy, mm. but you think it is novel I've read
1: mm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, India.
5: Hmm. Um. I liked it, but. <laughs> Actually, I have to think. I don't remember where I ranked it. You put... I think it was actually closer to the top. I have the same ranking as Brittany, I think.
4: Yeah, you both put P- House was... of Chains on top, and then...
5: Wow.
0: Yeah, P went rogue. <laughs> I was feeling pretty frisky that day and put House of Chains on top. Really? but Wow. <laughs> well, something something I've continued to find when I reread this, and then I'm... Inge, did you two put House of Chains on top? I think so. But that's because she's a fellow. She stands Fellison. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. No. Oh, it was a Fellison-driven thing. Fellison. But uh, anyway, uh, Steve, something I found is I think I enjoyed, although I obviously had some problems when I reread House of Chains. It's not like I'm over the moon about that book. I think I enjoyed rereading that book and Gardens of the Moon, like more since I think I basically already thought this was a good book and I reread it and I was like, ah, I was correct. This is a good book. I liked it. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I think I enjoy revisiting books that I feel like I'm processing or have a more complicated feelings about than kind of returning to memories of ice or something you know perfect
1: and and memories of ice is very Mm self-contained that's yeah it's very Mm
0: -hmm. much a standalone kind of story i
5: love Mm -hmm. memories of Ice. that was really really good too
2: memories (laughs) of ice is i think the last time i've cried which is Mm -hmm. in general i mean really it really got me that was like a year ago like over a year (laughs) you haven't cried in a year josh
5: yeah i cry josh But
0: Josh, why don't you just cry on the podcast right now? <laughs> <Perhaps>. <laughs> Let me get one That's going. About it. Let's get one going.
5: But I guess I want to ask you this because when I brought it up last time, they're like, well, it's not that important, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So at the end, I was expecting to un- to know what exactly happened to Troll. But AJ was like, well, we kind of find out at the beginning of the last book that he did something. So like that was that. But what, what was the answer? What was the reason? Why is it? Just tell me. I don't know.
1: <laughs> you mean the shorning.
5: Correct. The shorning.
1: Yeah. Um,
5: is it just not important?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not. The fact that he was shorn okay. is what's important. Um, what led up to it is is of less importance. Um, I think enough was put in place that you could see where this was going. That in in a sense, Troll was finding himself in... Irreconcilable position regarding the Adur, his tribe, his people, everyone. Um, he had been resisting all the way through and, and was obviously massively resisting during the battles. And and it just, yeah, it, he would have pushed too far. And I can't remember whether it's touched on a Reaper scale or not. It might be. I actually cannot recall whether we actually get that. I know the Shorning, in terms of the scene itself, that's the prologue. And yeah, that's, that's you know. I don't really think I, I went back to there. Mm.
3: Anymore.
0: So, I mean, we say, you know, we like the book. Hooray, yippee for us. But, you know, what about you? You know, looking back on it, how do you think about Midnight Tides?
1: Um, the first time, I think it was the first one where I said, okay, this is definitely a tragedy with fantastic elements and rather than a fantasy mm-hmm. with <laughs> tragic elements. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write a self-contained uh, tragedy because I think as... It's an art form that seems to be quite almost extinct these days. Uh, We don't see much of tragedies um, as a very specific uh, Aristotelian, you know, definition of of tragedy. We don't Mm. see it very much anymore. And, you know, thinking about it, Saving Private Ryan is maybe one of the last classic tragic films.
0: Mm, Sure.
1: Um, Has there been anything since? Not that I'm aware of. No, I can't really think of. Any other sort of big film that that's tragic. Anyways, it just struck me that it was it was it seemed to be going extinct as a form, and I wanted to get back to it um, and explore it. So that was Midnight Tides, and then once that precedent was set, I realized that the whole series could be seen that way as well, as more tragic than um, fantasy, mm-hmm. and that sort of led me towards what I was going to do with that in the tenth book, and I won't say anything more about that, but.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think lots of stories have these tragic elements or a tragic character that is like going through that arc of tragedy. But it's always a difference about then when the story itself balances on that element and hangs on the tragic nature as an entirety, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, Shakespeare is the classic for that. It's just Mm -hmm. if you're going to do a tragedy, you, you you go all in. Yeah. And. That was definitely, and then of course, with the Carcanus series, I thought, well, if I could go all in for one book with Midnight Tides, why not for the trilogy? <laughs> and that seems to have backfired somewhat. Uh, <laughs> it too, too unrelenting or whatever. Yeah. Mm. But I, I, that does strike me as useful. I mean, tragedy is to me a, a useful art form in, in the sense of leading to catharsis of some form or another um, in the audience, in the reader. Um which I think is is a valuable thing. Mm. Uh,
4: it's not a question, but I do just want to say the way the, the dynamic between the Sengar brothers is so good. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just like I, I mean, India and I, or, or Josh, or no, mm-hmm. oh God, who was it? I don't know. I'm the youngest of four me. siblings. It was, me. it was you? Okay, so I'm the youngest of four siblings. India's the youngest. And like reading. Pete's also the youngest for the record. <laughs> Pete is also the youngest for the record. Anyway. <laughs> AJ loves the brothers. I love the brothers. And the way that Rulad was written to just be like uh, when he wasn't being this, you know, force, this, whatever he was, this huge force. He was just like a little brother. And mm-hmm. it just
1: uh, do you have any siblings? You're an only child, aren't you? No, I have a uh, my brother's five years older. Oh, OK, OK.
4: Mm. OK, so you were coming also from You're the position of sibling. being a younger
1: sibling, I guess. Um, <laughs> or not. Uh, I mean, the novel's involving two sets of three brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
2: Which, by the way, who are you cutting out of the Sengars? Is it Banatus? You've just kind of cut him out? Binidus? The number one I, Sengar. I realized,
1: but... I, realized, I realized, yeah, he, he wasn't going to be interesting. Really- <laughs> uh,
2: which, is, which is crazy, because I think, like... If you just described each of them in a sentence, he's the most interesting. He's like mysterious brother who's really in tune with magic and is never around.
1: It's never around. Yeah. Yeah. Not relevant to the story.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I I, I just got to be honest, Steve, you know, last time the House of Chains interview, you know, we we had a bit of a back and forth, you know, I guess kind of I thought today was going to be, you know, I guess I was expecting a little bit more heat, you know, and uh, so no, but you know, about what? Yeah, it's just for much it's, we're very chill, you know. So I just I guess I was expecting, you know, I don't know. It's just being honest, you know.
1: Well, you guys are halfway, right? Mm-hmm.
3: Halfway. Yeah. Halfway. Sorry, Sorry, yeah.
5: do. I'm happy about it. <laughs> um, you are. It's it's going well. The first the first three, I'm happy about it. I think that I'm I'm it's uh, it's a bit more. Um. Well, the last book was actually way easier to digest. Um. That that we're talking about now, but. For the most part. And so is this one right now that we're reading now. So Mm. I'm feeling pretty confident. I'm always confident, though, until something happens that I'm just like, (laughs) wait, what? Has anyone
1: mentioned the chapter? I'm using capital letters on that.
2: Yeah, chapter seven. Peter, Peter sent us the list. Peter sent All us the that... list of reading order, and it's just one episode is that chapter. We were like,
5: no. It's four hours on my audiobook, and <laughs> oh my I God. Said...
0: It, It's kind of a black box. We don't know. Something's happening, you know?
2: Good. So, <laughs> I, be- I believe I know... What, How like, do you know? Someone wrote on the Discord, oh, look, they're going to give one chapter two blank, and I was like, ah, oh, damn it. Mm. <laughs> it was two words. Josh, it's fine. Josh, do not you dare. I'm not going to. Do I not Do not you dare.
5: Google. That's oh uh, Steve, sometimes I Google things. <laughs>
4: it's dangerous. a dangerous game.
5: Um no. just because there's some things that I feel like I need to know mm. before the book ends. Peter gets angry when I do it, but so I have I haven't recently because right now I'm really I'm really comfortable with where I am. I'm back with Absalar. Sorry, my She's finally, and I'm sorry to bring this oh. up now because I know this isn't what we're talking about. I know I'm just gonna say one quick thing. <laughs> She's finally getting the time that she deserves. And I, I am so appreciative yes. because she was my favorite, but then obviously, you know, Felison had such like a robust and incredible storyline. Oh amazing. Chef's kiss. But <laughs> now that saw so- like Absalar, sorry, is getting her
3: like mm.
5: arc. I'm just like, yes, this is what I <laughs> oh, really yeah. like- been waiting for so i'm just very excited um to to get into more of this story and we know them so it's just like a very different experience coming back to this book like coming to this book it feels like coming back Mm -hmm. so that's
1: what i was hoping for yeah yeah
5: yeah well it's i'm really enjoying (laughs) it so
1: well the chapter seven yeah the whole point of chapter seven is i would not let the reader go Mm -hmm. and that's the idea of it so when you get there you'll know um. okay, <laughs> okay. <Yay. laughs> i highly recommend you start reading it around eleven thirty 30 p.m at night as well and just go all
4: the way through all night, night. Oh, <laughs> no. yeah.
1: yeah
5: you got it that's the best <laughs> time when you're a little bit delirious so everything mm-hmm. could be real <laughs> there's really no difference
1: on second thought don't start reading yeah. <laughs> not for that chapter oh man then, Oh. I
5: don't know I'm, if these disclaimers
1: make me more or less excited about it.
5: <laughs> I feel the same way.
1: Oh, man. Well, it's really strange because I, I just mentioned on Facebook, going over the last the novel, uh, The Goddess is Not Willing, and there's a chapter similar to that.
0: Yeah, I saw that. You were like... Not in length, but in impact, I think. You're like, watch chapter 19, remember this. <laughs> yeah. Correct. Is, it,
5: is it really large, the book, as well?
0: No. No, it's what, probably one of my shortest. W- would you not say it's very big?
1: <laughs> yeah, I would say it's not very big. It's 470-odd pages.
0: Oh, oh psh, all right, that's, that's wow. sounds great.
1: <laughs> India, did you ever
4: think you would think 487 was not a lot of pages?
5: Well, I have a feeling that chapter seven is probably that much <laughs> alone. So chapter
2: seven uh,
3: um... is
5: huge.
2: Chapter 7 is going to make me buy a bookmark. That's going to be the straw that breaks the camera's
5: back. Four hours of audio. That's a lot. I have to read. Yeah, Yeah. I'm going to look. I think it's 100
0: pages. It's like 120. 120. Depends on the edition.
5: Okay. It used to feel... 470 felt large before. (laughs) It did. And now... (laughs) <laughs> Just like, oh i can do that in an afternoon <laughs> easy, easy. like reading mm-hmm.
0: i it's true and it's one of those things i think fantasy and kind of fantasy books often have kind of different a lot of them are a lot longer and there's kind of more of an expectation that you're going to put that work in so lots of times if it's like a 300 page book i'm like oh my god it's a this is a gimmick it's this a busy weekend <laughs> it's a day at the beach.
3: <laughs> Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's like, boom, 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 we're mm-hmm. done, the book, you know? Yeah. I just,
5: I feel when I think about fantasy and I'm reading this series, I just feel like every, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy any other fantasy novel. I just feel, because then, Peter, you made me watch those movies and they were horrible. And
0: What movies? <laughs> what movies? The Lord of the Rings. Oh my God,
2: India. <laughs> I forgot you hated them. <laughs>
5: And if they're all going to end up being like that, and I'm reading this, like, it's just more, I just feel like there's, like, maybe, maybe, is there, like, a mature fantasy and then, like, a less, like, a, like a child fantasy? Because this, this child for little like...
2: babies. Lord of the Rings is for... Free teens what India says.
5: Well, that's what it because I just feel like the concept. Like I just, I just don't see myself being interested in anything. <laughs> this is just so like my my brain is never in the like. And you're playing,
0: playing with live, live rounds, rounds right now. <laughs> yeah. What does that but mean? Don't forget. Is I mean,
1: like, both this... both The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings was intended to appeal to an audience that was that was a young young audience and then into adulthood and then we... later on in life of course
5: now, then we can't even compare really no not really so
1: why is
5: it um, even the same, like how is it even the same genre at the <laughs> end of the day
0: well india there's swords in both books so <laughs> therefore <I imagine. laughs> yeah um <laughs> Yeah, I would say that's m- probably the main reason I don't know there's more stuff but I don't know it's
5: just it's just so it just doesn't cap it didn't it doesn't captivate me and I and if, if I really wasn't captivated by these books I I feel I probably wouldn't be here because well, it's a yeah, lot
3: if you can
1: get get past sort of one of the opening scenes of Lord Fowl's Bane, uh Stephen R Donaldson his uh covenant trilogies are a conscious response to Lord of the Rings so you might really enjoy those
0: India's taken such a big stance you know <laughs>
5: I, I I, honestly you know what say I'm what only
0: say. I'm, I'm only gonna read Malazan these other stories are for babies They're child <laughs> yeah. stories
1: Donaldson in my mind Donaldson dragged epic fantasy into adulthood hmm. um, yeah very very strictly adulthood it's not a, a, a series to be read by children mm. um,
5: and I'm no child <laughs> So
3: there you go. Makes,
5: yeah. I'm, um, yeah, I i just, I, I, maybe I will because I, I'm, I'm interested now, but I don't know where to go next. Like, I, and believe me, I, I, we have four books left. So, um,
2: try, try Glenn Cook. He's the, he's the black company guy. Black yeah. company.
5: I've not, no. On oh. um, this is it. This, this is my, my deep dive. This was it.
3: Okay. I've, have you
1: read, do you read science fiction though? No okay I'm, try I'm, I'm... uh Becky chambers and cameron hurley
3: mm. i
0: i guess <laughs> i know what you mean inch but i think
5: stop defending your stance here <laughs> peter
0: i'm not trying i'm not t- i know like i i mean i like lord of the rings sure you know i don't but the genre is a lot bigger than that but also like it kind of hangs over the genre inherently do you know what i mean I think,
5: and and I think that is the deterrent that has kept me away my whole life. Is Mm. all I'm saying.
0: Yeah, I I get it. You know, I think I think there it. a lot of people are at at arm's length in the genre. You know,
5: because I never knew anything other than that. Like that, that was it for me. So coming into here, coming into this world, and seeing like, oh, oh, (laughs) it's just like a lot more. Like it's just a lot more interesting than I would have ever thought. Then there's a lot more thought than I than I would have ever that I even can put into it at this point, to be honest. Like a lot of things just go like way over my head. And then we talk about it, I say this all the time, and then I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. So, and I like having those moments that doesn't happen in the books that I read ever. Hmm. So the, it's just, this is the story and this is where it ends and that's it. But it's just hmm. a very different experience reading these books that I like. It's more challenging and it's more interesting because of it. So I'm kind of. Trying to trying to chase this high, if you will.
1: Hmm. It'll be interesting what you think by the end of the 10th book, mm. for sure. I'm looking forward to that one final uh, gathering we can sit and <laughs> discuss. In. Yeah,
0: right.
5: We don't have to call it a final gathering.
0: <laughs> okay.
3: Yeah.
5: We can make it the yearly thing. And we don't, we don't
3: do yeah, we can, for yeah.
0: the rest of our lives.
4: So. Still hop on every six yeah, months yeah. or so. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I sometimes like it's interesting, too, because the of course I like I've I've done a lot of hiking. And when I when I'm hiking, I often think about the ending. I'm like, man, like six days from now, I'll be done backpacking. I'll be like at the top of this mountain, whatever. It's like, you know, I often think about the end of this show in the same way as like this, this like terminus, you know, like we're going to reach the end of the crippled God and it's the end of this huge long journey, you know, and the pandemic has added this weird wrinkle into it, you know, because now part of me feels like in my mind, I'm like, well, I guess eventually the show will be done. The pandemic will be done. Mm. You know, I don't know. It's kind of this weird far off mountain.
1: hmm. Yeah. Mm. That's pretty much how it felt while I was writing it. Mm.
5: So the book that you're writing right now is about um, the name. with The, the tattoos
3: name.
2: With the, the, the tattoos. Hair. And the hair.
4: <laughs> yeah.
1: The, the Carsa Trilogy, some people have called it, yeah. Although Carsa doesn't feature in the first book at all.
5: I'm not surprised. What a, a stunt. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not
1: surprised.
0: Sounds like Steve. <laughs> Going
5: forward do you see yourself continuing to build out the Malazan world or like just like completely?
1: Well, what right you- now, yeah, right now I want to finish uh, the Carcanus trilogy. So mm. that's, that's the thing I'm, I'm hammering away at the moment Um, because I don't like, I don't like the sense that it's knowing that it's an incomplete trilogy. Um, mm. Yeah. So I, I want to get that out of the way.
0: I know you're playing close to the chest with it before. What are these role-playing source books coming out you know (laughs) like when when are we out here in the waters you know
1: i don't know i don't know (laughs) no i mean what happens is somebody contacts us maybe they'll sign a contract with the agent and we may get a lot of enthusiasm for the first three four months and then silence (laughs) so that's kind of what happens Uh, we've gone through that about three or four times oh my
0: gosh Mm. interesting what?
1: although a check check company is uh, has picked up the books taken over from uh, the previous publisher and they're doing a deck of dragons uh, to come along yeah to go along with um,
5: yeah
1: yeah oh, that's
5: kind of fun so that's pretty
1: cool yeah mm-hmm. that
5: would be fun
4: so if I had to guess it sounds like we're approaching the end
0: here because we are just kind of hanging <laughs> I mean, out now <laughs> i got jokes on jokes on you bro I got nowhere to go AJ you can't produce <laughs> <Okay>. this show <laughs> i also so
4: have nowhere to go <laughs> Gosh, what a, what a, please. <laughs> i'm having a great time i'm honest i'm having a great time but i still
0: haven't fully eaten dinner and it is now approaching 10 p.m but that's on me i guess what a man just a, just a chill time and once again i was surprised by it so that's all i gotta say so cool um, all right, AJ, do you want to wrap up? Do I want to wrap up? I assume you're. I, I assume you're cutting
2: this out did of you, it now. Did you? Did you have any questions for us before we go? Yeah. Steve? Anything else for us?
5: No.
0: No, I'm fine. It's good seeing you all.
5: Mm. Yeah. yeah. You as well. <laughs> <But> relax. <laughs> Steve, I do yeah. have to do my daily update on my life for you. All right. Okay. Just before I go, oh. because I have good news today. I have good news today. Cool. I opened an Etsy shop like two weeks ago, maybe three, and I got my first sale. That wasn't my friend today and that's my news <laughs> thank you so much i'm very excited about it it
4: sounds there like it's go. worth a dedication to me <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah yeah sure.
5: if you want me to glitter cup on my etsy oh my god i got you or a, or a, or a crew neck sweatshirt i got you there too
3: Right up.
0: andrew are you just trying to plug the etsy on the show <laughs> is, that yes <laughs> no you sly devil.
5: Me and Steve do this all the time. Please, this is an AMB conversation. It's a January, conversation. You can march your way out.
0: Oh, that's a
4: new one. I've wow, never heard that one before. Wow, that's no. a new one. Thank you. I've never heard
5: that. I heard it today. Very nice. She <laughs> 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 <Yes>, it immediately. <sighs> now you're free. <laughs> as you please.
4: Uh, well, I guess because Pete asked me to do it. Uh, Steve, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was fun. Uh, if you're listening at home, and you have any uh, questions, comments, anything you'd like to say about the show? You can always hit us up on Twitter at Ten Very Big Books or at Gmail Ten Very Big Books as well.
0: I think we, I think we got to stop using the word interview. You know, I have I have started saving a my files as conversation. Yeah, with Steve. Yeah. fireside. I think chat. the first
4: one was maybe an interview, and then they've just could become conversations after that because yeah. you know, and it's oh, always Brad a great is. time. It's I love the vibe of these. Yeah, it's such such fun. Um, and thank you so much for coming back every time and being into it.
5: Oh we appreciate it so much. All
1: right you guys, take care.